Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Jordan Gent. Uh, he's the founder of what's called Texas Fungus. The website is texasfungus.com. I'm going to talk to him about uh, the mushrooms that he grows. So, Jordan, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. If you would, tell me about how you got into mushroom growing. Uh, it's a funny story. I couldn't really grow anything else, which I know you, you said that mushrooms are more more complicated or maybe more difficult, but... For me, like growing microgreens or growing herbs, you know, lettuces, anything that involves dirt, I'm horrible at it. So mushrooms, I guess, kind of found me because I always wanted to, to be a business owner. And I had a previous career in the restaurant industry. So I was a chef for about 10 years and then kind of got chewed up and spit out as you know, it, it so frequently happens, but still really wanted to get back into food. I just wanted to be connected to food in, in a different way. 
And so I wanted to go onto the other side of the cutting board, so to speak, and become, you know, a, a really good farmer. So I looked at, you know, livestock, didn't have, you know, all the, the money to buy, you know, a few acres uh, to raise, you know, chickens or cattle. or But then I started diving into just some, some home gardening. Did that for about a year, year and a half. Couldn't grow almost anything. Killed a cactus, killed a cactus. And then started looking into composting because I wanted to discover, you know, just like a, a really awesome soil that maybe I could get the soil right and I could get the plants to grow. About two Makes hours. Yeah. yeah. So uh, a couple hours later, I stumbled on a YouTube video of someone growing shiitake off of hardwood logs and uh, primarily oak. So went down the rabbit hole and about eight hours later, called my mom and said, hey, I'm putting cooking, putting, I was in, I also had a finance job at the time working for an investment company. And I was actually going to school at the same time and uh, told my mom I'm dropping out putting to work fidelity investments and i'm just going to be a full-time farmer and i'm going to i'm going to figure it out and she was like are you are you sure i was like yeah i'm absolutely positive and that was september 18th of 2018 so that's when i i guess decided to make mushrooms or fungi my full-time income yeah how did you decide which kinds to grow so because i have a background of working you know in the restaurant industry in Dallas DFW, where where I'm located, I saw that there was not a a local specialty mushroom farm providing you know cool ingredients that uh, the chefs don't really have the opportunity to get their hands on. So I saw I just saw that you know no one really existed doing what I was doing. So I, I grew pretty easy mushrooms to grow, or like oyster mushrooms. So reached out to a few chef friends that I had from, you know, work over the years. And I was just like, Hey, can I bring a box by? And if you want it, you know, you can buy it. If you don't, Hey, no sweat. And every single one of them bought and I sold, you know, like uh, my first, you know, 25 or 30 pounds and I was ecstatic. So at that time I was in a one car garage in a condo that I was renting and eventually you, you stretch out from the, the garage to the living area and the kitchen. And so pretty soon I filled up the whole house and was like, I just, I gotta, gotta move out and decided to take over a place that I've, I've been in since 2019 here in Arlington, which is just a, a small 2000 square foot warehouse. And we grow somewhere to the tune, seven to 800 pounds of specialty mushrooms every week. As a chef, actually, I wanted to ask you some questions. What What was your perspective as a chef when people would come in to sell you microgreens or mushrooms or things like that? Oh, we always loved it. I mean, like, as it, it depends on the chef. Certain chefs just want to deal with one food supplier, so they they call up Cisco because they only have one invoice, and Cisco can pretty much handle anything you ask. Some things, not so much, but you know, ninety percent or not, I'd say ninety five percent of what you need you can get it all done with one purveyor but if you have any ambition and you you want to create new dishes you want to stick to seasonality having somebody walk in that has a really good product even if it's you know you know the local price which is usually more expensive you're willing to pay for it because the quality is there and you know that 
if I can create a better quality dish consistently, then I will, you know, have more consistent customers. And, you know, ultimately you, you fill seats quicker, more often, your, your customers are more satisfied and, and they, you know, they tell other people about it. Hey, I had this awesome dish at, at this restaurant and it had these, you know, little micro cilantro that, you know, cause a, you know, a lot of customers have never seen that stuff before. And so they see it for the first time and they get excited. And what do they do? They tell the next, you know, person that they trust the most about, hey, you got to try this food. So, and that, that's really what cooking is. Like if, uh, if you ask me like the, the definition, right, it's ingredients plus execution. Well, the chefs only have so much control over the ingredients. We have, me, the producer now, has more control over the ingredients than the chef does, but they have 100% control over the execution of those ingredients. And so it's really a symbiotic relationship where we have to make sure that we are doing our best every week to provide such a high quality ingredient so that the chef can execute you know, an awesome dish. So, so most chefs, so far as you know, would be amenable to someone coming in, you know, as long as their product's consistent and good, but they would be open to it or... Is it a small percentage of chefs? Most of them are like, ah, this goes all I need. I don't want to deal with this. I'm not in the mood. No, most of them will at, at least let you, you know, come in through the back door and at least give you the time of day to show your product off to them. It's common with hotels that they have approved vendors just to make sure that, you know, you're a legit company, mostly just for like, you know, insurance and liability in case anything were to happen during a delivery. but. If you're going after a privately owned restaurant that has a really talented chef, those guys will listen to you all day long. They, they love working with multiple purveyors. You know, it, it's very common in a place like New York, right, where almost every kind of ingredient, they have a different purveyor. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. But okay, so, that's cool. I just, I just so, wanted to ask you for your perspective because I haven't spoken to a chef yet. So oh, it's just interesting really? to see what, uh, what you guys think. I've spoken to thousands of other people, but usually they're scientists, so chefs, not so much. But I'll have to yeah, do a series. I mean, there, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of science that goes into, into cooking for sure. It's, it's almost all science. But to, to give you some perspective, there's about 2,500 restaurants in DFW, and we sell to about the top 1%. So we sell to about 30 restaurants a week on, on average. And so, you know, you really got to make sure that if you are going to, you know, prospects, any of those restaurants or any of those, you know, top chefs in town that uh, they, that you meet their price point as well. There's, there's a lot of restaurants that I would love to work with, but you know, we, their average uh, plate cost just doesn't match up with what we need. So it's kind of a different animal. Chefs are great. Um, I love working with them. Before we continue. I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. 
uh, for mushrooms, I don't know. Like, I know some people love them. I love them. Some people don't like them. Some people think they're weird. Do you feel like most restaurants would be open to mushrooms or is it more of a niche product and only certain people like them? Yeah, no. So every chef that that I've ever known has a great affinity for mushrooms. And, and even I did whenever I was cooking. I remember whenever I was a young young cook right out of culinary school and uh, we were out of mushrooms for that day. Just, you know, your white buttons. And I asked my chef at the time, I was like, hey, you know when we're going to get any more of these? He was like, I don't know. These things grow like almost overnight, which kind of always like stuck in the back of my head. And then upon research, you come to find out they don't grow overnight, <laughs> not in the least bit. But most chefs are, I would say that they would be very welcoming to a new or even very young mushroom farmer coming in with something that they either have seen before, but don't currently have access to through their current line of vendors. So, and if you get to work directly with them, you know, you can kind of learn their, their idiosyncrasies, kind of what they like, what they don't like, how they like, you know, certain things. And so there's a lot of more customization where you just don't get that when you buy from just a, a wholesale food distributor. So mushrooms, when they're freshly harvested, do they taste different than if they've been, like, how long is their shelf life and how does their taste profile change from the moment you harvest them, you know, through an X number of days later? Really, it depends on the mushroom. Like uh, pink oyster is probably one of the, the most gorgeous mushrooms in the world. However, it has a shelf, a shelf life of about 48 to 72 hours from the moment that you... And so you really need to make sure that you get it into the chef's hands right away. So for me, that, that mushroom is not so much commercially viable, but you take another one like blue oyster, where it's going to have a shelf life of about seven to 10 days. And then after that, you'll start to see the uh, rigidity kind of deteriorate, where it just starts looking soft. It's not very firm anymore, where uh, you go to slice it through with a knife and it just doesn't pass the, the knife cut as easily as it would had it been a few days you know, more fresh. So yeah, Lion's Mane has, you know, a really great shelf life, about 10 to 12 days. Maitake has about 10 to 12 days pretty easily. So some of them, I would say on the average, you should be able to get a week out of just about every mushroom that you can buy across the board. Some can go further. Okay. So I guess like the pink ones, you'd have to tell a restaurant, all right, maybe for Saturday night, you offer it just as a special, but you know, we'll have to get it to you that that day or one day before at most. And it's, so I understand yeah. why it would be so limited. Yeah. But what, yeah, what happens yeah. if, you, uh, if you leave them in place, quote unquote, too long? Like once the mushroom appears, how long do you have, depending on the mushroom, to harvest it? You know, what happens if it is still connected to the mycelium and you leave it, quote unquote, too long? Essentially, what's going to happen uh, for us, like we grow on mushroom grow blocks. We make our own substrate. So if you leave it attached to that substrate, it's more likely just going to spore out and drop a spore load because you've now introduced it to, you know, fruiting conditions. So the mycelium feels like its life cycle is, is being threatened, which it is. And so because of that, it's going to try to produce a mushroom as quick as possible to keep the life cycle going, right? So once it does produce, if you don't pick it on time, it will just kind of wilt on the block, so to speak, and eventually just turn to mush. 
especially if it's like a very humid environment. If it, if it does get, you know, not picked on time, but you're in a dry environment, it'll just essentially dehydrate kind of right then and there. So there's this small window of about 48 hours that you have of what is like prime time to actually pick them. And then once you hit that, we try to stay at about 85 to 90% maturity so that they still stay very vibrant. So for us, like getting that extra quarter pound is, is not really worth it. You know, when you look at it in terms of quality, that extra quarter pound, yes, you, you have more weight, but you'll lose shelf life. That mushroom will spore out more. So, you know, for your staff, you got to be more conscious because spore lung is actually a form of pneumonia. And if you're around it way too much, it will make you sick. And then eventually you're not growing mushrooms anymore because you're now allergic to it. So yeah, picking on time, we harp on it like crazy around here. So a mushroom will turn into a mushroom if you don't get it on time. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. What about um, once you pick them, is there a way to store them to give them maybe an extra day or two of life? Like, you know, what if you put them in really in the fridge or, you know, in plastic yeah. or what, like, what's the best way is to, to keep them going as long as possible? Yeah. So specialty crops, just like anything else, you know, you, you really need to knock that field heat off. Hopefully within, you know, two hours, you can at least get the field heat down to 60, 60 Fahrenheit. And then from there, if you can get it below 40, then the following two hours after that, that should mitigate any kind of food safety concerns, you know, that may exist. So uh, for us, we try to keep our grow rooms pretty cold. So if they're getting harvested at about 65 to 67 Fahrenheit, it should only take about two hours to get it down from there to about 40. And then, you know, that I would say the, the quickest that you pick it and getting it in the cooler as fast as possible only further enhances a shelf life on it. Oh, okay. So they got to be stored pretty cold. So is that what you Yeah, mean? it's not like a potato. So right before you, you store them pretty cold up until the time you deliver them, like do you actually have to have refrigerated trucks or you just keep them cold, put them in the delivery vehicle and they'll survive to get to the, the chef? No, no. So like even uh, even mushrooms that have been sitting in your, your walk-in refrigerator for two days, they will, if you take them out and then you deliver them, and say two to three hours later, if you just leave them out on like a tabletop, they will spore out again, or at least attempt to right then and there. So you don't ever truly like kill it, right? It's still a living organism. And so we try to make sure that when we pick it, it gets harvested and trimmed because we try to sell mushroom and not substrate to our customers. So when we deliver a case of, of mushrooms, you're getting only mushrooms. So you have, for the chef, you end up getting a much higher yield because there's a lot of product that you don't have to throw away because we already did that for you, right? Then from there, after it gets, to, after it gets refrigerated in our walk-in cooler, about 24 to 48 hours um, from the time that we, we plan our harvest, in 24 to 48 hours after it's harvested, it's on our delivery truck, which have, has a reefer unit and a thermo king on the top. And then from there, it's in cold transit all the way from essentially when it was picked and harvested to, you know, the, the chef's hands. Oh, wow. So it's, it's from cold to cold. I guess when you deliver it to the chef, you tell them they put it in the fridge right away until you're ready to use it, right? Yeah. 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 We try to tell them, hey, keep it refrigerated. 
at all times. That's going to keep it, you know, the most vibrant that it can be. So, yeah, we, we definitely don't recommend just keeping them out on your counter. That, uh, that oh. will deteriorate quickly. Yeah, they're, they are very perishable. Well, even, even for people eating them, you know, if I go to like Whole Foods or wherever and buy them. So it sounds like they'll keep better if I, if, if, when I bring them home, don't let them sit on the counter. Keep them in the fridge until you're ready to use them. Sounds like that would be a Absolutely. good tip for people. Absolutely. Yeah. You should, okay. you should always store them in the fridge and preferably whatever vessel you receive. All right. And then um, you mentioned the blocks they grow on, you make your own. So how did you come to that decision? And, you know, whatever you can reveal about it, like what do you make yours out of and what are various substrates that people can use and what do you use? Yeah, yeah, sure. So whenever I got started, I had this dream of having purely log-grown shiitake where I had some land where we had an oak forest and I would just chop down trees and then inoculate the wood with shiitake mycelium. Then the Texas summer came and, you know, 15 minutes, you already need to change your, your shirt. So I went to this more kind of, uh, not I don't want to say industrial, just more modern way of growing where we use a specialized mushroom grow bag that has a filter patch that's pressed onto it because that allows for gas exchange because mushrooms and fungi inhale oxygen and exhale CO2 the same way that you and I do, right? So mushrooms are more closely related to humans than they are plants. Because of that and that gas exchange, you that's actually that's absolutely critical. So <laughs> we we were actually very blessed to uh, be located where we are because one of the largest manufacturers of those grow bags in the world is located 45 minutes north of us. And so we can go pick, pick up our grow bags at any time. Um, then from there, we use a two yard soil mixer that mixes all of our dry ingredients, which our dry ingredients being uh, hardwood sawdust, preferably oak, and then we use a mixture of soybean hulls, which are just the skins off the edamame, really high in carbohydrate, really high fiber, about 8% protein and 0.5% fat, which is pretty critical. So if you just use soy hulls, you know, whether that's pelletized or loose, that's a really great kind of single ingredient as a nutrient source uh, to add to uh, your sawdust. And you can use that in ratios of one to one or 50-50. And that will work pretty, pretty well for almost all specialty mushrooms. And specialty meaning not anything that is not white button, cremini, or portobello, right? So we, I like to add in a, a little bit of gypsum and a few grains being oats, a little bit of whole wheat, and then a little bit milo or sorghum, and then a little bit of millet. But those all together is about 5%. We keep... You, you had a pretty complicated uh, substrate that you... Recipe, like, how did you arrive at this over time? Trial and error. You know, you, you just, you, you take meticulous notes. Um, you get really good with Excel and Google Sheets so that uh, you can track the data. And you may not... And that's what's really important about the specialty mushroom industry is that it's, it's still very young, still very new. You know, you're, you know, we're considered a, a large grower, but in my mind, we're, we're still a micro farm, right? But if you, on the specialty side, but if you grow commodity 
mushrooms like white button cremini portobello uh you're not even a real player in that game unless you grow a million pounds a week or more you know you're not even really on anybody's radar until you, oh, wow. you hit the one million a week mark yeah so you know we we obviously have two different goals but to give you some perspective on that on the commodity side two people can man a grow room and grow 30 to 40,000 pounds a week of mushrooms out of one single grow room, just two people. Wow. So, yeah, so they've been doing it for, you know, 30, 40 years, or I'm sorry, I should say 40 to 60 years, actually, is what's been recorded. The specialty side, is, especially in America, is still, still very, very new. And so what you're starting to see is that there's a lot of American mushroom growers taking on the Japanese and the Chinese mushroom growing efficiency strategies and methods and techniques where equipment and automation is extremely important. Yeah, no, interesting. Depending on the substrate recipe, does it change the taste of the mushrooms or the yield? Like, What are some of the parameters that a mushroom grower would want to uh, modulate depending on the substrate choice? Yeah, um, yield for sure. You're, you're that's going to play a big role. Um, that's also going to play a big role in mushroom health, uh, or I should say the the fruiting body health, as well as the substrate health. Meaning, if the substrate in incubation gets too hot because it colonized too quick, because it got too much too much nutrition, you're going to end up with a very poor yield, if anything at all. Right. So. There's a lot of it you, you don't really want to rush. Like, yes, mushrooms can grow fairly quickly compared to a lot of other crops, but there is such a thing as, as too fast. And so when you go to, you know, look, when you're looking for a specific substrate recipe, generally lower nutrition, meaning about 25%, say nutrition and 75% is going to be sawdust. That's very, very safe. You can go higher up to like that 50-50 mark, but, you know, in the summer when things are much hotter, you may see, uh, you know, mutations. You may see poor, poorer yield. Uh, you may see just in, inactive growth whatsoever. Uh, you know, it's, it's very possible. So you got to kind of find your balance because that, that it does change from climate, you know, from one place like in Florida, you know, it's hot and humid as opposed to where I'm located, where it's just hot, right? Um, but if you go to another place like, say, New York or Washington or California, you know, really on the coastal sides where it's going to be a lot more colder, um, you know, they have a whole other set of parameters and challenges than what we do down here in the South. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, are, are a lot of mushrooms okay to grow together, or do you have to only have one kind of mushroom in each little grow room, otherwise they'll mess each other up or will the spores go from one mushroom to another and, you know, take over their substrate and, you know, outcompete them? Like what happens if you put different kinds together? Yeah, so this, you actually bring up a, an interesting theory that I've never really heard anybody else talk about. I've never heard anybody else explain it, but it has to do with spore load. And I just kind of coined it with the, the term growing power. So what I mean by that is if you have a, a set grow room and say you're growing multiple species, more than three or four, like for us, we six 
sometimes seven in the winter will grow about eight, right? But we, we only have two grow roots. And so certain mushrooms only, only grow with mushrooms that they actually like to grow with. So like um, I, I came to find out last year, lion's mane and maitake will not grow in the same environment whatsoever. Um, and the reason why is because all of that oxygen that is available, all that fresh oxygen that's available in the grow room, the maitake couldn't receive any of it because the lion's mane just sucked it right out of the air, you know, right out of, you know, the, the, the atmosphere, um, because that mushroom requires much more fresh air exchanges through the room because you have to pump in, you know, more air than what you actually need. Right. So different species call for different amounts of fresh air. And so when you if you were to put it like on a matrix, right, you could put certain mushrooms in that matrix, but not all of them will work together. So when I well, found you know out what, that lines like, don't work. Hmm? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing I, I don't know if this would work, but I pictured if you know, at your inlet to the air into the grow room, if you put the mushrooms close to the inlet that don't need as much oxygen and the greedy ones further back, maybe that would give a chance for the ones that, you know, usually are, are pushed out uh, to get oxygen and then the greedy ones in the back will suck up the rest. Um, so that will actually have the reverse effect huh. where the, the ones, the ones that don't need that much air, you, you want them in those pockets where there's uh, almost, you know, non-turbulence. And then the ones that do require a lot of fresh air, like say oyster, right? Oysters require a lot of fresh air. Lion's mane requires a lot of fresh air. Uh, Maitake doesn't like a lot of fresh air. Um, and it also doesn't really like uh, a lot of C or doesn't like low CO2. It actually prefers higher CO2. So when you combine those together, you may not get the same result. But if you put those same mushrooms or those same, you know, that same amount of substrate per species in a different room with a different mushroom, you'll get a, amazing results. Oh, okay. I also imagine, too, if you have mushrooms that are, you know, they use a lot of oxygen, it creates high carbon dioxide. If you had a grow room of plants or, you know, a greenhouse, what if you pump the air, the outlet air into the greenhouse and then the outlet greenhouse air back into the uh you know, the mushroom grow room, I, 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 you probably have to filter out spores, but it'll be interesting because the two kind of are simpatico, you know, the plants would yes. produce more oxygen, the mushrooms would produce more carbon dioxide. Yeah, there's, um, that has been attempted by uh, a lot of people. And I don't know of anybody to date that is consistently doing that on any kind of commercial level, um, mostly because yes, the spores and they clog up you know, filters. So you'd have to be changing out those filters every day. Right. And you'd have to have some, some pretty sophisticated, uh, AC ductwork, uh, in order to, to make that happen where, um, hopefully you can deal with that, but also the air is very humid as well. So in our grow rooms, they will bounce between 88 to 96.2% humidity. Wow. And so if, if you have that much moisture traveling through air filters, you will eventually clog up those air filters. Not only will the air filters will get soaked in, you know, just moisture, but they'll get clogged with spores, which will then cause your fans to overwork and then eventually heat up and then probably 
uh, perish and die. And so you'll be dashing all my and, all my mushroom hopes. I I know it's like it's it's a terrible a terrible way to go about it, but I'm I'm just telling you the reality because no, no, I appreciate would, it. I'm just would, teasing. Yeah. You would think you would think that it would be totally sustainable. I've often thought about okay, well, what plant can we put into our grow room that would love you know this environment? But I just don't know of very many that would uh, need really high moisture, really high humidity, colder temps. And could handle the spore load. I just hadn't found mm. uh, anything in the plant side of the world that uh, that would, you know, adhere to those parameters. Yeah, I understand. It's trade offs. I, I had a grow tent years ago, and we got one of those like you know boxes you cut open to grow oyster mushrooms, and I just put it on, oh, yeah. on the bottom of the tent, you know. But it was in the house, and I remember oyster mushrooms grew, and then my dogs would eat them. I said they somehow found them and just ate them right out of the substrate. You know? Oh wow. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's cool. Oh, one thing I, I recently I got a kit, but I just I don't know I didn't do it right. So mold grew. How do you um how do you know when you've gone wrong in growing the mushrooms? Like you know when when would bacteria or mold take over and not mushroom? Like what what are um, some of the things that can go wrong with the growing? What have you experienced? So um, I like to say that mushrooms specifically are one of the best teachers if you just want to learn about yourself right because if you're not getting uh you know quality fruits right um then you need to change something about your process uh, generally on a petri dish you'll see yeast or penicillin or aspergillus that will generally show up in the first 48 to 96 hours so about the first two to four days if you make uh, if, or if you do some agar transfers from one very, very clean piece of mycelium onto another agar plate, uh, if something doesn't show up in the first, you know, probably four days, I would say, um, then you're in the clear. Uh, but you've when it comes to mycelium, uh, then kind of the name of the game is clean propagation. Right. So you would go from very clean work and you verify that on an agar plate, and then you decide, okay, what agar plates are clean, what are dirty, discard the dirty, save the clean, that's gonna be reserved for uh, your grain spawn. Or if you use sawdust or you know whatever vehicle you wanna use for spawn, right? Which is essentially now you're, you have to make your own mushroom seeds. That's what spawn is Actually, uh, a good. Yeah, yeah I realized I, I kind of jumped the gun, but can you go through, um, you know, what are all the steps to grow? Well, you know, they'll go crazy with detail, but what are all the basic steps to grow mushrooms from start to finish? And, you know, when you say sterilization, what does that mean? Maybe if we lay out the process first, then the, the answer will make more sense. Yeah, sure. I'll try to keep it succinct because um, that's it's kind of a long-winded answer. Um, but at some point, you, you need to start with either spores um, or fruiting body, or you can get from... Uh, you know, you can buy actual like a, an agar plate filled with mycelium in a variety of different ways, whether that be liquid, liquid culture or an agar plate. You would use one of those two. A lot of times I like to do a lot of cloning where I'll find a specimen that I really, really like. I like its quality or the qualities that it has. And then I will take a tissue sample and then place that onto an agar plate. Give that about three to four transfers to really clean it up where you get you know, really 
fast, clean rhizomorphic growth. And then from there, you would transfer that to uh, some sort of vehicle that you could propagate it out to, and that would be labeled spawn, right? So for us, we like to use millet because millet is a very small seed and the moisture content is pretty easy to dial in. And so from there, we would transfer a small wedge of that agar plate into a bag of sterilized grain, which would be millet. And then from there, you would seal it up in that bag. And that bag has a filter patch as well. So you would grow it onto the grain first. Then from there, uh, once it's completely taken over the grain, you want to do a plate test and sector off a, you know, break off a little piece of, you know, probably 10 grains or so, and then transfer that onto an agar plate to verify that it is clean. You know, four to five days later, if nothing shows up, now you know. What, what, what do you mean? Uh, what do you mean clean? What would show up if it's clean versus dirty? So essentially, anything that is not what you are intending to grow is considered a contaminant. Right. So if I'm trying to grow some some blue oyster mushrooms and I do a, a plate test for my grain spawn on an agar plate, and if there was yellow oyster mycelium in there, that yellow oyster mycelium is considered the contaminant because it's not what I intended to grow. But it could be trichoderma, aspergillus, uh, penicillin, yeast, um, all, all sorts of different molds and bacteria. Right. So. Um, once you've verified uh, that your, your spawn is clean and good to go, now you can transfer that onto bolt substrate. And so for us, we, we use six pounds spawn and we propagate that out onto 400, or I'm sorry, yes, 400 pounds bolt substrate, which is going to be your mostly sawdust based. And then you can add whatever nutrients you like, whether that be soybean holes, cottonseed hulls, wheat bran, uh, cracked corn. Uh, you know, a lot of people use a lot of different things all across the, the nation and across the world just based on availability. And so that's really one of the, the best parts of, about mushroom growing is that we can take a lot of agricultural waste materials and provide food off of it. Just a little sidebar. So from there, once you inoculate your bulk substrate, it's going to incubate for anywhere between, call it two to eight weeks, depending on the species. So like blue oyster only needs about, you know, two weeks to incubate if you do it right. Shiitake needs about eight weeks to incubate for it to, to grow properly, just because they're, they're two totally different genus and they, <laughs> they grow in completely different ways. And then after you hit full colonization inside that, that bag with substrate in it, you would then initiate it into fruiting conditions, meaning those fruiting conditions being uh, pretty low CO2, um, pretty cold air, and pretty humid. So temperature, humidity, and CO2, those are your three main factors in your fruiting room. Typically in your fruiting room, once you transfer those, that set or that batch of blocks uh, or those grow bags into your fruiting conditions, you're going to have about 72 to 96 hours of uh, lag time where it looks like nothing's happening, but the mycelium is starting to wake up and realize, oh my gosh, uh, this might be the end. We need to produce a mushroom so that we can keep life, you know, going. And so from there, it produces a mushroom based on the nutrition that you gave it, right? And so now for for me, 
we've kind of figured out, you know, how to how to grow a mushroom. And now I'm focusing more on nutrient density. And so that's why having data on your substrate. And then uh, I've just sent them off to go get tested uh, to a place locally here so that we can see absolutely like, OK, what is in our mushroom? That's cool. Um, and then from there, yep. we can modify our substrate to hopefully make a more nutritious product and make a, a more tastier one, you know? Yeah, one guy I recently interviewed is a professor emeritus, Robert Bielman. Um, he pulsed UV light. He exposed certain mushrooms to UV light, and he was able to change their color and their taste and their levels of ergothionine and vitamin D and all that. So it, it really changed the product quite a bit. Um, and I was going to ask you, with different substrate mixes, do you experience different tastes in the mushrooms or different shelf lives? Or like, what are some of the parameters you've been able to modulate in your experimentation? Um as far as taste, not so much. I, I haven't seen a, a big difference on flavor with with different substrates, which is to me kind of disappointing because I, th- I would think that they would have a different flavor, but a lot of them just I, I, I couldn't tell the difference to be honest. As far I would think nutrient density, if you can lower like heavy metals, you know, that would probably be you know best for pretty much everyone across the board. But if you can really hone in on, you know, micronutrients, that, that's kind of where, at least where I'm headed, at least. So as far as changing the substrate, if that does change the mushroom, I would vote yes. In terms of shelf life, I've noticed more denser mushrooms when we had changed from wheat bran over to soy hulls, where the stems were still very palatable, but it didn't just kind of dissipate in your hand where as opposed to with wheat bran, they were kind of weak, so to speak. Anytime you picked it up, we were like, Hey, you know, be extra fragile with these because they're just, they're going to fall apart in, you know, two to three times of handling as opposed to now using, you know, I used about 40% soy holes and it's just a much more firmer kind of denser mushroom and the chefs like it. Our farmers market patrons, they really like it. Uh, it that ended up being a, a win-win for everybody. Yeah, no, that's really cool. So you sell to chefs and you said you sell through farmers markets and like what what are you selling to whom? Yeah, so about 92% of our business is direct to restaurant, uh, wholesale to the chef. And then uh, we sell, you know, about the other eight percent through uh, farmers markets. And then we also sell to HEB Central Market. And that's a part of our wholesale accounts. That's cool. Yeah, I'm in uh, Austin, so I know HGB. I'll have to look out yeah, for the mushrooms. Yeah, it's huge down there. Um, well, we're not in Austin yet. We're just up here okay. in uh, the DFW area. But uh, there's, uh, yeah, but there's one really cool inoculated the, the Austin area yet? Not, not yet. No, no. That's uh, maybe one day. But uh, we'll, we'll saturate Dallas first before we uh, move on to, to Austin. What are your core products that people can buy? So if they're in the Dallas area, you know, what, what can they buy from you guys? Um, so like if you uh, wanted to stop by the farm over here in Arlington, you know, Monday through Friday, we're available here up until about 4 p.m. And then on Saturdays, we go to the Cowtown Farmers Market in Fort Worth. And then we also go to the White Rock Lake Farmers Market over in Dallas. So over there, you're going to see uh, fresh mushrooms that maybe you've seen before, maybe not. Really, really tasty. If you really like, you know, a really intense mushroom flavor that uh, if buttons just aren't doing it for you anymore, 
we, we recommend you give us a shot. And then we also have a line of tinctures. So we do lion's mane, reishi, chaga, turkey tail, maitake, I believe it. Oh, and cordyceps as well. And so we sell those as individual bottles. And then we also have a, a rise blend, which is intended for in the morning. So you can drop that into you know, your coffee, your water, your tea, or just straight onto your tongue. And then we also have a night blend that's intended for you to just take right before bed. And that, you know, th- those are, you know, created in specific ways for specific mushrooms like reishi helps to regulate your sleep cycles and maitake helps to regulate your glucose levels, right? And so we blend those two together. And then we've also got some people that requested all six. So then we ended up creating a super blend and that has all six mushrooms in there in equal equal parts. And then we also have a line of mushroom seasonings. So any mushrooms that we deem are not good enough to sell to a restaurant. And as long as they're still clean, uh, but they just don't quite meet the quality standard, we send those off to get dehydrated. And then we have a chef that we actually you know, sell to on a weekly basis. And part of his time at the restaurant is making mushroom seasonings for us. And so every week we make a togarashi blend. We've got a classic, which is your salt, pepper, garlic, mushroom. We've got a smoked salt that's really good for, you know, barbecuing, or if you just want to have like a simple little, you know, smoky kind of flavor. And then we actually have a barbecue rub as well. And so that's what you would typically see at our table at the farmer's market is fresh mushrooms, mushroom seasoning packets, and then some mushroom tinctures as well. If you want to take a holistic approach. Hmm. Okay. Well, very good. So the best way to find you is what? Go to the website, Texas Fungus, or how can people reach out? Yeah. Yeah. If you uh, reach out to us through the website at texasfungus.com, I'm a little bit more responsive through social media. So Facebook or Instagram is great as well. Hmm. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jordan. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else I can answer for you? Oh, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. No, that's, that's great for now. Thank you. All righty. Well, thank you so much for having me and hope you have a great rest of the day. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.